Hello and welcome to SAE Tomorrow Today. I am your host, Grayson Brulte. On today's episode, we're absolutely honored to have Omar Kaloff, CEO and co-founder of Innovis Technologies. Today's episode was interesting. We left the United States and, and went to Israel to discuss the founding of Innovis Technologies, the current state of Israeli tech, and why Israel continues to innovate and spawn innovative companies such as Innovis Technologies and Mobileye. We hope you enjoy this conversation. Omar, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. I'm super excited to have you here. You're based in Israel, an incredible country that's spawning some of the most innovative technology companies in the world. So I can't wait for you to to tell that story today. Omir, I would like to kick it off. What is Innovis Technologies and why did you co-found the company? Innovis Technologies is developing technologies for autonomous vehicles, life-saving technologies, so people uh, would uh, run into less accidents. Uh, my background, uh, I started as uh, in the army. I've been involved in many technologies development. Was always looking to take part in very interesting uh, development of technologies. And I was, after being involved in some very exciting uh, different industries, I was looking to start uh, my own company. I had several ideas on you know things that I can do. I was looking for trying to solve a problem that someone would uh, convince me that it's impossible to solve. I wanted to do only something that I thought that if I would be able to gather enough smart people, we would be able to do something which makes sufficient value to the world. And I think that in 2016, uh, when I was looking through the different ideas I had, I realized that one of the fastest growing markets in the future would be the automotive one. And in order to bring a safe autonomous vehicle, one of the bottlenecks uh, that existed, or I would say indicated, was the shortcoming of LIDARs. LIDARs are sensors that allow the car to see in a very long range and in a 3D manner. It's It's a laser scanner that allows the car to see the world. And the solutions that were available at that time were completely too expensive and big and unreliable, and the gaps were very meaningful. And I myself come from a family uh, where my older sister uh, was involved in a very serious accident, and she was only injured. You know, and and you know every year you have. 1.3 million people dying on the road and 15 million people injured. And as a, as a kid living in a, in a family where his sister got into a serious accident, I know very well how that might impact your own life. And I thought that if I would be able to help accelerate that life-saving technology, it would be very meaningful. And that's why I decided to focus on that problem Although many people have tried to convince me it's a, it's an impossible mission to do it, that only made me more excited about it. You have the, you're, you're 10 at the time that your, your sister was in, involved in that horrific crash. The, and obviously that stayed with you throughout your whole life and you're looking at saying, okay, well, how do we make this not happen again? Impossible problem? I'm going to solve impossible problem. When you're looking at trying to, to save lives, solve an impossible problem, why did you hone in? on LiDAR specifically, you mentioned it was too expensive, it was too clunky, too big. 
But was there something that you saw in the technology around Liar that, wait a second, I can have a really positive impact on society by focusing on this one critical problem to enable autonomy? Yeah, I mean, if, uh, if I kind of go uh, through my history on which kind of technologies I was part of before starting Innovis, I think there is a common, uh, I would say, line between them. Um, you know, we try to always try to do uh, technologies that are, uh, you know, groundbreaking. And um, some of them are related to safety. Uh, in, you know, I was part in, I was serving in the army, developing technologies that were life-saving in a way because uh, they help to protect people. And then, you know, after seven years uh, being in that environment, you become addicted really to develop technologies that are that important. You know, when you wake up every morning and you know that you're part of um, a product that can actually mean so much uh, to the life of people, it is very addictive. It's a, it is a kind of... Uh, pace and, and commitment uh, that drives you so passionately to try to do this faster and faster <laughs> and better, it's, uh, it's very difficult later to do something that is not. And, and then, you know, when I, I went out, I, I, started, I worked on different technologies, and I think the common ground on, on between different uh, solutions was how to make something very big and expensive and make it very accessible and cheap. Most of them were around optics. And when I saw the LiDAR uh, solutions that were available in 2016, I was horrified. It, was, it looked to me uh, unreasonably uh, uh, unreasonable. I mean, I, I couldn't really imagine how such a product that looks like a big, uh, you know, speaker amplifier, uh, which cost $50,000, could ever uh, allow adoption of life-saving technologies, technologies. And it was very clear to me that if I manage uh, to develop uh, the, the startup I was part of before I started, you know, with, we developed a molecular sensor. Okay, It's a sensor that is the size of a small uh, mouse. Uh, basically, you point it uh, on any material it shines light on it, and from the, the reflection of light back, you would see which uh, light was absorbed into the material, and by that, understand what's inside the material, such as what kind of a medication it is, uh, you know, how much fat is in your food, and really quite uh, amazing. It's like a tricorder, <laughs> uh, very cool technologies. And, and I think that, you know, if you think about what we did there, we tried to take uh, technologies that are available in very big labs, very expensive, and and try to bring it uh, to everyone, to hold it in your pocket and basically know more about the world you live in. And we had to go through a very long process in which we developed you know, unique technologies in order to make that available. And going through uh, that experience and others, I mean, I was involved in other very exciting technologies. I I kind of mastered uh, the I would say the art of uh, how to make things uh, smaller and cheaper. I would give you a hint that it's uh, 
mostly related to the fact that the world has made a huge achievement on processing power, which allows you to compensate for lower, uh, lower grade, um, I would say, optics and unperfect material that allows you to make it much smaller and cheaper and compensate uh, for it with a very strong I, like uh, processing power and algorithms. And that's how you are able to achieve uh, same or even much better performance, but you know, in, in a very affordable manner. And I, dis- I realized that uh, it has to be done on the LiDAR space because otherwise there won't be uh, an available technology that could actually be adopted for volume. And I can also tell you that you know, one of the setbacks that we felt uh, when we started this was that we realized that the problem is significantly harder uh, than we anticipated because what we tried to do was not was actually not the right target because I was trying to make the existing LiDARs at that time cheaper and smaller and, and more reliable, but the problem was actually much more difficult because even those LiDARs at that time, even though they were so expensive, they were not good enough. When we started to talk with car makers on what would really be the perfect LiDAR, uh, the, the gap were, I would say, three orders of magnitude on the performance of the LiDARs uh, that cost $50,000. So the problem became not only making it smaller and cheaper, it was also making it significantly better. So, you know, starting our process and, and learning that the problem has become harder by three orders of magnitude could be uh, quite, uh, I would say, uh, an interesting uh, experience. Uh, and, and that was after we uh, started and, and raised money and started uh, to hire people, learning that we actually need to, uh, I would say, reset our path on how we should really tackle this problem. Those early pitches, what did they, what did they look like? Because there's, there's LiDAR companies that were known at the time, and you're going through and pitching a LiDAR to venture capitalists and seed money. What were those early pitches like? Were you saying, and you've been quoted as saying, we're not in the business of selling LiDARs, we're in the business of solving problems. Is that when you're meeting with investors, is that what you were selling to them? Or how did you get the investors to eventually invest in the company? It took me, <laughs> when I left that uh, startup uh, of developing that molecular sensor, I left on the first day of 2016, and I raised uh, the first million dollar seven days later. And it was a quite fast process, as you can uh, understand. And, and I think what led uh, to that expedited process was, uh, I think, two things. One, I was lucky enough to be able to find an investor who knew very much about the automotive space and knew even better than me uh, about the hurdles of uh, the the gap uh, in regards to lidars and what what are how important it is, and the second is that based on my background in in being able to solve very difficult problems before that, that's why it didn't spend much time on really understanding how really we are going to solve it. He knew that we are going to be super committed and basically not going to sleep until it's solved. 
And, and that's why he decided to step in very quickly. Now, the fact that that uh, investor was also a very known uh, industry, uh, you know, uh, super league, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> once he decided to step in and he stepped in also as a, as a co-founder and an investor, as the chairman, uh, basically, all of the other investors just uh, jumped in, and we eventually raised nine million dollars in two more weeks. So one month after I left uh, my previous job, I raised nine million dollars and and started to hire people like crazy, and and run as soon as possible. And I think it was uh, the right timing for many aspects. And as I told you. You know, when I started, I spent the first two, three months to talk with the industry and understand exactly what they need. And it helped me to avoid the mistake of just pursuing a problem which was not the right one to solve. And it helped us to, uh, you know, try to really solve the problem that was needed. So we just, uh, we we don't go to sleep and that's how we uh, (laughs) solve things. You're like New York City, the, the city that never sleeps, but you're in it as the company that Tel Aviv. never sleeps. Tel Aviv is yeah. a, it's a city without a, a, a stop, is how it says. <laughs> yeah. One month in, you found the company, one month in, you raised $9 million, an incredible feat. Did you start feeling the pressure? Okay, I've got a track record of solving big problems. i got to accelerate solving this problem of LiDAR. Yes, it, it's a lot of pressure. I, I promised my investors uh, that in one year, I will uh, have the first prototype. And as I said, uh, two months into the activity, we learned that we need to do something completely different. So it was uh, creating much pressure. It's a very uncomfortable situation to be in. Also, you know, in front of the team and everyone, you know, as, as a CEO of a company, all you want to do is is really try to show how you're making progress and, you know, focus on execution. And and, and really, it's a, it's a horrible situation that you, you're not really sure exactly how your product uh, should be developed at this stage. There were three months uh, that we sat around the table. We were about 18 people. And and basically, we tossed around different concepts of how to develop this problem, how to solve it. It took us about uh, two months to get to a decision that we need to really think outside our, I would say, our hat. I'm not sure if that's the, how to say it in English. But uh, basically, I told the team, stop trying to develop a LiDAR based on technologies that are available, available to you. And, and try to think how, which technologies we need to develop in order to f- meet the requirements. And that was a game-changing kind of you know, event because we, I told them, build a LiDAR based on technologies that will be available to us in three years and, and just define which technologies you need to develop. And that led to a lot of flexibilities that eventually allowed us to meet the requirements in terms of both performance and price and size. Obviously, it required us to take significantly higher risk on our plans because now a young startup to develop three different kinds of uh, chips. One is in the optical domain 
it's a detector and one is a MEMS chip, which is a micro electromechanical system. It's like a small chip that acts like a mirror that you can control in different angles. And of course, a processing unit, an ASIC, and on top of it, you need to develop your own optical design, electrical design, algorithms. And it's a, it's a very ambitious plan. And I can also tell you that uh, it's, it's a risk that uh, we decided to take. And in, in, I can, can tell you that, uh, you know, I remember someone from my team stepping to my room. Uh, one of the most, I would say, experienced people that we, we hired. I mean, the most gray hair <laughs> we have in the company. <laughs> and he, he himself, he was a CEO of a startup. He led big companies. And he told me, Omer... This is like a huge risk that we're taking. And maybe we should try to find a, a compromise and maybe find like a shorter or lower risk plan because we might end up with nothing. And I remember that it was a very difficult discussion you know, for me because that's a guy I obviously value and his concern is not something I can avoid. But I told him something that I think was uh, still stays with us in the sense that I told him that the team that we hired uh, to Innoviz are probably the most capable engineers I know. And I know very experienced and smart guys. And if this team would decide to find a shortcut and not bring a solution that eventually would allow uh, to adoption of life-saving technologies, no one else would do it. And if I prefer trying and maybe not be able not to meet it, I mean, try and fail rather than deciding uh, to fail to begin with. Because if we decide to do something that is not good enough, you, we need to assume that it will eventually not be available to the market and it's on us. You know, BMW uh, met us about one year after we started. We had nothing but a prototype, which we were able to uh, to show eventually. It was uh, a very fun experience. And they took a very uh, a big leap of faith on us because, you know, when a car maker like BMW is making a nomination for a supplier for serious production, it's not a, a technology project. It's not a POC. It's not like evaluation. It's really serious stuff. I mean, it eventually, it's a, it's a factory that needs to build cars. And, you know, we all know the just-in-time kind of story about technologies that if one is missing, everything stops. So you can imagine that counting on a, a, a very young startup, uh, bringing a technology that does not exist yet, uh, assuming that in, in four years uh, that product would be in, in volume production, automotive grade, it's quite a big leap of faith that they had to take on us. I can say that, you know, I think it, I can try to explain how they were able to do something like that. Uh, and I think that they are still very confident that they made a good decision it was mostly because they believed our strategy was the right one. There are different ways to try to, to solve our problem. And I think we managed to convince them that uh, the way we decided to solve this problem is probably the right one. And after they spent about a year of uh, due diligence with us, I think that uh, they also learned why uh, we will eventually be able to do it because they 
the, the confidence they got from talking with our engineers was, uh, was very high. And it's a, it's a really, it's an amazing uh, relationship that we have with them. You have BMW as a customer, and obviously you're talking to other OEMs and, and other investors. And if they ask you why Innoviz and not a competitor, how do you respond to that? There, there is an easy answer and there is a, a more complex one. I'll start with the easy one. Eventually, uh, our technology is not, it, it's, it's a very objective one, right? Because it's a, it's a sensor that has certain attributes and such as very, very similar to how you would uh, compare different cameras. It has a certain resolution, frame rate, field of view, price, size, and, and in all of them, we are you know, considerably much better than the rest. And I know that for uh, people that are, I mean, the LiDAR space is very noisy. It's very difficult. And, you know, what I just said, you know, if you think about it, it should have been very easy for everyone to do that comparison, right? I mean, it's a very objective uh, parameters of a sensor, range, resolution, field of view. It's, it's really very easy. I mean, you put everything in, you know, in a table, compare it one next to the other, add to it, price, power consumption, reliability, etc. I think everyone would be very easy, easily uh, try to, I mean, be able to say which technology is better. The problem is that uh, uh, it's not available because uh, none of my peers are really sharing that data with the market. Uh, the, the good news is that uh, our customers are aware of our advantages. So when we talk with car makers, our, advantage, our advantages are very clear to them. And that's why I think that our uh, relationship with different car makers are going very well. Other than that, you know, if you think about the process that we've gone through with BMW, and we have another German customer, we didn't disclose its name. You know, those are the car makers that are are going to be the first in the market. Uh, traditionally in this market, the, the first technology adoption is made by the German car companies because they are, um, I would say, they have sufficient volume of premium cars that allows them to adopt new technologies and they know how to conduct a qualification of new technologies. And it's their role in the market. They are the early adopters. Like in any industry, you have companies that are uh, the technology leaders and those that take risks. Uh, car makers in the US and in Japan provide, they are much bigger car companies. So the level of risk they are able to absorb is significantly less. So usually they make a decision on technologies that were already qualified and managed by one of the German car companies. So we are very focused also on that market. And maybe that's also an advantage of an Israeli company because being uh, in Israel, uh, working with the German car companies is, is relatively easy because of the time difference. And maybe some of the, I would say, relationship between the two countries, uh, which uh, we know we're trying to uh, develop. We have very similar uh, mindset and, and, and working together. I think that uh, our automotive experience is also something that is at our, to our advantage. Israel's automotive 
sector is growing. You had Mobileye that was acquired by Intel for $15 billion. Then Pat Gelsinger, CEO of Intel, recently announced they're going to spin Mobileye out for their second IPO at a $50 billion valuation. Acquired for $15 billion, second IPO at $50 billion. It's a huge success, and to me, it validates what Israel can do for self-driving technology. What are your thoughts on that, on Mobileye's second IPO, and do you feel that will shine a very positive spotlight on the Israeli automotive technology sector as a whole, saying here's a, an extremely, extremely successful case study? Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think uh, to, um, in 2017, when Mobileye was acquired by uh, Intel, it gave a huge push to the entire Israeli auto tech, all of the Israeli auto tech leverage on the light that we got from, you know, mobilized success because it became more clear what is the price tag for successful technology for the automotive space. I think Mobileye and companies like, of course, Tesla uh, show uh, the value of technology in the automotive space. If you think about it 30 years from today, Obviously, the technology would be the biggest differentiator uh, between the different cars. Like today, when when a new iPhone comes out, they talk about the new features, the technology features and advancements, and it will probably be the same long term. It will be less on who manufactured it. It will be about you know what additional features are introduced. And the value that Tesla created was mostly around the fact that it is considered a technology leader and not a car company, right? I mean, they are trying to become, I mean, they are uh, one of the the biggest uh, valuation uh, car company, but in essence, the valuation comes from people understanding that Tesla would continue to lead on technology and not just on cars. And I think Mobileye, uh, and you hear also about Apple uh, going into this sector, it's obviously because they recognize that uh, their opportunity to become a meaningful player in this market is huge because they are a technology company. I mean, traditionally, this, the car maker is based on a certain structure where you have different car makers. We call it OEMs, BMW, Daimler, Ford, GM, etc., um, when they build a car, uh, they have thousands of components inside, but they don't want to manage thousands of suppliers. So they aggregate the different suppliers uh, by uh, working through companies that are called tier ones that eventually manage uh, those suppliers. And it helps the car makers to manage uh, a platform only by through a few uh, companies that are certified tier ones. And, and when I say certified, it's because each car maker has its own group standards in terms of uh, quality and reliability, um, integration processes. It's eventually to be a tier one to a car maker, you need to go through uh, a very long process and audits and, and meet their requirements in order to be added to that shortlist of direct suppliers. And it's also financials and quality and logistics, etc. Now, those are tier ones, and, and usually they are the door to the market. As a tier two, you need to find a tier one who is willing to offer your technology to that car maker. In some cases, by the way, um, 
The tier two is just behind a certain, like a firewall. The tier one is managing everything directly with the car maker. And at most, the tier two is selling a component or reference design, and the tier one is managing the whole project. In our case, um, in the BMW program, we were a, a tier two uh, working through Magna as a tier one, but we were actually working very much directly with, uh, with BMW and we were able to absorb a lot of knowledge in the automotive space. And in a way, we also took many of the roles of the tier one in terms of uh, the production of the samples, the production of the manufacturing tools, the design of the software. So the, many of the things that you, you would actually expect from a tier one, we did, and it helps us today uh, when we are competing on those new programs, we are competing as a tier one. Now, it is very meaningful because it helps us to be able to offer our technology in a much more commercially attractive manner because we don't need to, there is no double stack up of the margins and it's uh, allowing us to be much more flexible on a you know, on, on the process and there, it's not a, a three-way kind of integration, it's only two-way. And also it's because eventually when you work with, with a tier one and offer it to a different, to a specific car maker, they need to offload all of the development cost and production cost to one customer because they can't rely, it's not their technology. So eventually they can't rely on the fact that event, I would not work with another tier one and then uh, they don't get back their uh, expenses. So the car maker is required to pay for everything, all of the development costs and manufacturing costs. It becomes horrible. <laughs> it becomes very difficult. Becoming a tier one allows us to offload and amortize all of our development costs across not one customer, but 10. And it helps us to be much more, I would say, competitive on pricing. And so it's obviously a benefit to the car maker. Innovis clearly has big ambitions. Innovis is now a publicly traded company. What did you feel when you took Innovis public? You built this Israeli startup, you converted it to a tier one, and now you're a public company. What did you feel? Say, wait a second, I still have big problems to solve or were there nerves? What, what was that feeling like? Uh, what else I can do? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm a person that you know, when you don't go to sleep, it's uh, you know you you have to do something with that time, and I I think that uh, one of the things that we do well here is that we we are we are structured in in a certain way that allows us to operate on on many things, and and we hire very good people, so you know people are in a way asked. Uh, to make their to make decisions and try not to be too bureaucratic uh, in the way that things are working. I always tell people, don't let me slow you down. Like, I mean, you can make mistakes, and of course, if I'll see a mistake, I'll tell you. Then that's kind of like the agreement between us. You can you you should make like you should make decisions. You you are allowed to make mistakes. If there is a mistake, I will probably tell you. And that's fair. I, I told you to make a decision without consulting with me first. If 
of course, people do consult with me, but in general, I urge people uh, to make decisions because you know the only thing that slows you down is if, if you know if, if suddenly things are not moving because everything has to go through me. It's horrible. I mean, it's it's will you know the company becomes stuck, and I don't want that to happen. It's uh, I, I prefer to iterate and and move, and you know I actually I believe. In, in making mistakes, I believe that through mistakes you you always sharpen you know your process. You you learn more from mistakes than uh, not doing anything. I can tell you that you know when when we started, and I told you that we decided to go through different new technologies. In many of those, you know, in a way, we kind of like took a very big risk and just learned from the results of you know, how much risky it is or, you know, I, as, as I have told people, like, you know, let's throw the stone into the water and see if we hit something or not. And, and you know, when, when you hit something, you, you learn something. And, and even if you don't and you see where it lands, you also <laughs> learn something. So I believe in taking risk. I believe that taking risk is the right way to grow. Uh, of course, taking risk is one thing, manage them is another. And, you know that's why we are here, right? To, to try to do things better, not, you know, just uh, do things that are simple. <laughs> I mean, you're st you're clearly striking the right balance between risk and reward. But what's next for Innovis? So I, I, yeah, I think look, there are different car uh, car companies that we are now offering them our new product, Innovis Two. Our next generation product is coming very soon. About two or three weeks from today, we will show it to the market. It's a product that is uh, 30 times better than Innovis One. It's, uh, it's, it's an amazing product, uh, and it's going to be 70% cost reduced versus the first product. So 30 times better, 70% cost reduced. And people ask me, like, if it's 30 times better, why do you need to sell it <clears throat> to 70% <laughs> less? Of course, I can charge more, but then no one like will be able to buy it. So, and that's not what we are trying to do here. So, we are trying to meet the limit. I would say the willingness to pay. And you know, in any in any car company, you have cost engineers that what they do is to calculate the value of uh, of any feature and and try to understand like how many cars they would be able to sell. And if they won't be able to meet it, it's not that they will, you know, choose something that is less good. They will just wait until it gets to the price point because they, they won't bring to the market a technology which is not safe just to save cost. They will just not do like they will not do it. They will just wait. And I want to raise the sense of urgency uh, for those technologies because it doesn't make sense to me that people are still you know, still dying on the road in, in such... I mean, you saw the COVID-19 goes down and suddenly more and more accidents. And, you know, people had a lot of sense of urgency to solve the problem of COVID-19. And that completely were not accepting the fact that people are dying on some new uh, pandemic. But suddenly when there are uh, more and more accidents, well, that's okay. You know, that's something that we got used to, right? I mean, it does, and it's not okay. I mean, it's not, uh, possibly people 
look at the pandemic as a, as a third kind of uh, an influence from outside. They have nothing to do with it, and that's not acceptable. And car accidents, they feel they have more control on, but it's not. I mean, people are uh, injured by mistakes of others, and we should all have the sense of urgency uh, to have that available. And my own experience on that would be I drove a motorcycle for a few years, and I remember when I decided to stop driving it, I felt lucky. I felt that I survived. I felt that I managed to escape the statistics of a motorcycle driver. And I think that in a few years, people will have the, the same experience because they will realize that one of the most risky things that we still do on a day-to-day is mobility. And it shouldn't be. I mean, the fact that we need to travel from one place to another doesn't have to come with such a high cost of uh, fatalities. And we just need to bring it there as soon as possible. Technologies such as yours, what you're developing in Innovis and other companies developing, hopefully we can get there because the crashes and, and the fatalities are sad. And it's an astronomical number that's not discussed enough because it's, I hate to say, it's become commonplace. Okay, everybody's kind of moves on, but it's a sad problem that has to be solved. And Omir, as we look to wrap up this fascinating conversation, what would you like our listeners to take away with them? Really, what I would uh, love people, what I'm trying to uh, do is bring up to the attention to people that, you know, we need to have more sense of urgency about life-saving technologies. There is a, a big confusion, uh, and we did a study about this, by the way, in trying to understand how people feel about autonomous driving, whether they are worried about it, whether they want it. And there is a big confusion on this topic, because, and, and you can see it because people are afraid of it. And the problem is related to the fact that people are still confused between things that are I would say called uh, full self-driving or autopilot, etc. And while people uh, see that it's not uh, robust enough, they are worried. And it's it's kind of like a, it's a responsibility of car makers to uh, educate people more about the differences between the different technologies. And because you know we we need people to to want to have those technologies available. And currently, people are still uh, not educated well enough to understand why it's important to, to have the right technology. And, and I think that uh, making a discussion about autonomous driving as a leisure, like how I utilize my time working when I'm driving, is one thing. But when talking about autonomous driving as something that considerably going to reduce the number of people injured on the road is uh, is more important. And so we need to have higher sense of urgency of having technologies uh, available for life-saving uh, you know, on the road. That's my, uh, I mean, that's my wish. I mean, that's what I'm trying to do over, uh, you know, in, 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 many, in, in many ways. <laughs> We're going to get there, the ADAS versus autonomous vehicles and public misconceptions. The industry is coming together to to work on that, and I have no doubt that we will get there as an industry, and we will do good as an industry, and we will save lives as an industry, because today is tomorrow. 
Tomorrow is today, and the future is Inaviz. Amir, thank you so much for coming on SAE Tomorrow Today. Thank you very much for inviting me. Thank you for listening to SAE Tomorrow Today. If you've enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, please kindly rate, review, and let us know what topics you'd like for us to explore next by emailing podcast at SAE.org. That's podcast at SAE.org. Be sure to join us next week when we sit down with Quentin L. Messer Jr., CEO of the Michigan Economic Development Corporation. We discuss why Michigan is more than just the automotive industry and why Michigan continues to innovate and will always continue to innovate. SAE International makes no representations as to the accuracy of the information presented in this podcast. The information and opinions are for general information only. SAE International does not endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any information, product, process, service, or organization presented or mentioned in this podcast. 